on the record on news talk you're very welcome back to On The Record. Kieran Cudahy with you until one o'clock and given the time. This time every week, time for Hidden Histories. Donald Fallon is with me in studio. Donald, how are you? Good to be here, good to be here. Racing over to the park. On this holiest of Sundays. <laughs> yeah, you're going to see him. <laughs> I, I, I am a great admirer of Pope Francis and an awful lot of for time now. I, I would describe myself as a Christian, if not a Catholic, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a great admirer of Pope Francis and I do welcome, welcome him here, despite all the congestion that he's causing in this <laughs> wonderful city today. Yeah, well, look, uh, we are to, touching a little bit on religion uh, in, in, in today's topic. It's the 80th anniversary of the coming to power of Ireland's first president, Douglas Hyde, and much like uh, Trinity College, uh, much like Trinity College Dublin academic, founder of the Gaelic League, of course, committed cultural nationalist. He was regarded by many as as perfect for this highly symbolic position of Uachtaráin. Uh, still mere months after his rise to the Auras, a high-profile row erupted between the president and the GAA over Hyde's decision to attend a soccer match in Dublin, and it said much about Ireland of the time, and it was an internationally reported scandal of sorts. But to talk about the man himself for a moment, Donald, he was quietly remarkable. Yeah, and I think people will Remarkably remember, quiet. We, we carried Douglas Hyde around in our pockets uh, for many years. He was a familiar face on the old Irish punts. Uh, but a largely quiet man in his, in his own lifetime. And this sounds like a, a kind of oxymoron, you know, that someone could be a quiet man and, and a remarkably important individual. But he was both of those things. And, you know, he... He was many things. He was a nationalist, primarily interested in the kind of cultural revival. Uh, you know, in many countries, a cultural revolution follows on from a political revolution. In Ireland, it kind of happened the other way around. And Hyde was central to the cultural revival. He came from Roscommon, son of a Church of Ireland rector, educated at Trinity College Dublin, a place that was deeply Protestant, you know, owing to the, the ludicrous self-imposed ban of the Catholic hierarchy and their flock attending that institution. The great joke was, young men may loot, they can perjure and shoot, they may even have carnal knowledge. However depraved, their souls will be saved if they don't go to Trinity College. <laughs> that, was, that was Protestant ground. And he was an amazing academic. Even as a student, he was fluent in Hebrew, in Greek, in German, in French, in Latin. But his great passion, his great grow in life was for the Irish language, which people believed was in terminal decline in the 1890s. It had been, of course, devastated by the famine, by exile, by a changing globalist world in which English was becoming the language of everywhere. Uh, and he is the driving force, if you will, of the Gaelic League. Yeah, 1893 then, he founds it. And he founds it not as, a, not as an explicitly political organisation. Uh, it's later taken over by young political radicals like Patrick Henry Pierce, Patrick McPierce. But, you know, Douglas Hyde or Douglas Tejeda, he sees the Irish language movement as being about just that. You know, it's about language. And he says it's about two things. It's committed to, one, the preservation of Irish as the nas- national language of Ireland and the extension of its use as a spoken language and two, the study and publication of existing Gaelic literature and the cultivation of a modern literature in Irish. And it grew massively and was a very positive thing. You know, all over the, all over the country, the Gaelic League just exploded. Irish language classes popped up everywhere. I mean, looking in the newspaper archives, the Working Man's Club on the Keys, which is now a nightclub called the Workman's Club, they had a Gaelic League branch. Tiny villages on the west coast of Ireland where Irish would have been once the spoken language of everyone. Gaelic League clubs popped up there. And Hyde's language could be sharp. I mean, he condemned, quote, men who read English books but know nothing of Gaelic literature, those who read penny dreadfuls, shilling so- shockers, and the garbage of vulgar English weeklies. Now, I don't think he meant Nuts magazine that hadn't been invented yet, but, you know, lowbrow English publications. And he complained that, quote, Ireland is becoming a nation of imitators, the Japanese of Western Europe. It's insulting also the Japanese. Or, <laughs> I'm not sure great, everyone... That's a, that's a great dig thrown in two directions. Yeah. But, you know, make no mistake about it, you know, this man was ultimately a cultural nationalist. And as far as Douglas Hyde was concerned, the pen and the chalkboard 
they were the weapons of war, you know, not the trusted Mauser rifle, as far as other people like Patrick Pierce were concerned. And then when it came to politics, he, he was remarkable, I suppose, in the breadth of support he had. Yeah, and he managed to keep himself out of an awful lot of the big political issues of the day. So I think when he realised that the Gaelic League was being taken over by young Republicans, he kind of stepped aside and he resigned as president. 1915. So he had this rare thing in Irish politics, cross-party support, and he's broadly respected by everyone. He, even after independence, he essentially avoids the big political debates that ripped Ireland apart. And not everyone liked Douglas Hyde. I mean, the Catholic Truth Society waged war on him because of this perceived support for divorce uh, when he was a senator. Imagine divorce was a big issue here in the 20s and 30s. So when 1938 came around and there was the question of who will be president in the inter-party talks, he made sense. You know, he was the only person that could mm. be president. He was admired by everyone. Cosgrave liked them. De Valera liked them. He had international prestige as an academic. He had the, and I think another big thing was appointing a non-Catholic, you know, to the office of president, the first president of the state. That was deeply, deeply symbolic. That sent a very strong message north of the border to unionists. And that challenged the idea that the Irish Free State was a Catholic state. You know, Carson said home rule is Rome rule. And yet here's the Irish Free State and its first president is a Protestant. And was it a big story internationally? Everywhere, everywhere, but especially in places like Egypt and India, you know, in the colonial and the former colonial world. This was very, very important. And I think, you know, that we took our president, the Uchtaran, and we moved them into the Viceregal Lodge. I mean, that was built as a symbol of British colonialism. And now we call it Oris and Uchtaran. So it gave this, you know, this idea to the world that Ireland was actually free. Mm. The Treaty of 1922, what kind of freedom did that give us? You know, we still had an oath of allegiance. We're very much still part of the British Empire. But here we were putting Airman into the Viceregal Lodge, calling it Oris and Uchtaran. And I think that sent a message to the world that Ireland was finally removing the shackles uh, of British power in this country. So then, November, the rails come off, the honeymoon is over, He's what happens? barely in the job. And in November 1938 comes this amazing showdown where he goes to a soccer match in Dalyman Park. And at the moment, we have a president who loves going to soccer matches yeah. uh, in Dalyman Park. When you follow the League of Ireland, you see Michael D. Higgins all the time. I think Richmond Park on one side and Dalyman on the other are about an equal distance from Arson Uchtaran. So he's constantly seen uh, at League of Ireland matches. But we live in a very, very different Ireland. And to us, it's harmless enough stuff now. But Douglas Hyde was an honorary pra- patron of the GAA since 1902. And when he went to that soccer match, he broke the famous Rule 27. Rule 27 meant that not only were GAA members banned from playing foreign games, they were actually banned from even attending them and watching them. And in one way, it was a very clear-cut rule when you read it. You know, it says, quote, any member of the association who plays or encourages in any way rugby, football, hockey, or any imported game which is calculated to injuriously affect our national pastimes is suspended from the association. But in another way, it was totally ludicrous and unclear because baseball... American football and even daredevil stunt drivers were all allowed to happen in GAA grounds over the years that the ban was actually in place. So to me, what it means is it was basically a ban on games that were a direct threat and that were played here regularly. There were no kids playing baseball or American football yeah. in the Phoenix Park. And it was good for Irish-American dollars to have those games here. But this was about garrison games, you know, soccer, ga- uh, soccer, rugby and the like. And there were very high-profile victims of the ban, uh, most famously Con Martin, Brilliant footballer, brilliant broadcaster. They actually took his medals away. He played GAA and soccer. And they even had a vigilance committee and their job was to ensure that members didn't dabble in kind of Anglophile kickabouts. And brilliantly, I found one report from a 1930s meeting uh, of the vigilance committee 
where this is a direct quotation, quote, one player admitted attending the association football match in question, but said he did so at the request of his club to see if other members or players were present. In other words, he went to the soccer match and his excuse was he was looking for his teammates. So it was ludicrous. And GAA players, believe it, believe me, I've met some of them. They did from time to time sneak into Dalyman Park wearing, you know, a new coat and a high hat. Oh, I'm sure they did. The stories of people like signing up to the vigilance committee so that they could go to matches. They could go and watch them. They could go and watch the team. (laughs) But sure, even I remember my dad telling me, like as late as the 60s when he was in primary school, that they'd be playing football and then as soon as they saw the Christian brothers or anything, one of them would pick up the ball, quickly Mm. pick it up and pretend you're playing Gaelic football. We cannot be seen to play football uh, on on the GEA pitch. Big high profile. Con Martin's not the only one. I mean, there are other great high profile victims of this. Very talented soccer players that were forced uh, to make that decision on what way they were going to go. So back to Hyde and this game he attended. Ireland against Poland. It was a great game. There were more than 35,000 people in Daly Mount Park and we won. Uh, And Ireland won 3-2 which was incredible because they actually lost their last game against Poland 6-0. And there's a great picture of Hyde at the game and on either side of him one corner you've got Eamon de Valera and the other side is Oscar Trainer. Minister for Defence great soccer man. The Oscar Trainer Cup is named in his honour today. Mm. And, And de Valera was a great sportsman as well. He loved, he actually adored rugby. And he talked a lot about the great love he had for rugby. But, you know, how he felt he wasn't able to indulge that, you know, for fears that it would be challenged politically. But Trainer was different. Trainer quite liked challenging things. You know, he was a former goalkeeper with Belfast Celtic. He went on to become the president of the Football Association of Ireland. And if there's one thing Oscar Trainer loved, it was clashing with the GAA. And I think he was very happy, very, very happy to have Douglas Hyde beside him that day because he knew it would create a row. Yeah, a trainer as well uh, in 1928 <laughs> yeah. talked about this. He wrote this brilliant article uh, on, quote, the crimes of playing football <laughs> for what was called Football Sports Weekly. And in it, I mean, some of what he said is ludicrous. He tried to argue that soccer is a Celtic game. Uh, he said, quote, it has its roots in the highlands of Scotland. Now, I would dispute that. I don't think soccer is a game. We're, we're very quick to claim everything in the world yes. as being in some way Gaelic or Celtic. I don't think this game is. I'm surprised we haven't found an Irish great-great-grandmother for Pope Francis uh, <laughs> while he's here. Maybe someone's working at the minute. But what he did say was, and he was right, he said some of the highest executive officers of the Republican movement from 1916 onwards played the despised foreign games and I never heard any of them apologising for doing so. He meant people like Cahill Brewer, who played cricket, Kevin Barry, who played rugby. You know, as far as he was concerned, it didn't matter what games you like. Sport is just sport. Uh, and he loves the chance, loves the chance to go to war with the GAA and when, the offer arri- when the offer arises. So this is crucially important. You know, the fact that one of the people beside Douglas Hyde that day is a government minister who the GAA absolutely hate. So you've got Trainer who the GAA hate, you've got Dev there. But what about Hyde then? Hyde versus the GAA. Uh, the story of this clash is beautifully recorded uh, in a book by Cormac Moore, a sports historian. And the book is entitled The GAA versus Douglas Hyde, which is a brilliant name. And it captures the, the wedge in Irish society. Everyone in the country had a position on this. And a little bit like the, the recent scandal over the use of the GAA grounds for the soccer friendly, it just blew up in the GAA's face. I mean, the Irish press newspaper, which was basically the mouthpiece of Fianna Fáil, they came out and said, the president is the head of the whole state and not of any section in it. He owes an equal duty to all citizens, whatever views they may hold or whatever form of recreation they may indulge in. And the Irish Times said the notion that the game by which a round ball is kicked only and not punched as well as kicked is detrimental to the national culture is of course the most utterly childish form of humbug. So they were kicked from all corners of the media. I mean the Irish Times was still a kind of decidedly unionist paper. The Irish press was very, very nationalist. But 
it was very rare those two newspapers agreed on anything. They agreed that Hyde was badly treated. And he was ultimately, he was expelled. He was expelled. And in fairness to him, afterwards, he kept doing what he did. He went to a rugby game in 1940 and he had no particular grow for rugby or soccer. But again, as I said, this is standard affairs. Michael D. Higgins does this all the time today. He just regarded himself as the president of all of Ireland and he attended sporting events of all kinds. And I wish, I wish we could say that was the last scandal. Uh, the first and last scandal in the life of Douglas Hyde. Unfortunately, there was still one to come. Yeah, what happened? What was this scandal? I find this just very sad, but he died in 1949. And when he died, it was decided that he'd have a state funeral. Of course he would. The first president of the Irish Free State is, of course, entitled to a state funeral. But Douglas Hyde was Protestant, so the state funeral happens at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And the contemporary rules of the Catholic Church then meant that Catholics couldn't attend service in non-Catholic churches. So, embarrassingly... Every single Catholic member of the cabinet, with the honourable exception of Noel Brown, actually stood outside St. Patrick's Cathedral while the funeral of the first state of the Irish, or the first president of the Irish so, nation. So they were like the latecomers standing yeah, at the back of they mass, were standing outside. And when when the coffin came out of the church, they followed it uh, in procession. But as the actual funeral took place, there was almost no one, bar Noel Brown, the very brave Noel Brown, representing the state itself inside of the church. Yeah, Noel Brown, another man who wasn't afraid to stick his thumb Absolutely. his nose at, oh, at, at a marvelous, the church. A marvellous, marvellous man. Uh, and, you know, a controversial figure, Noel Brown. Uh, but, you know, the mother and child scheme and everything else that comes to mind. But he was driven by his own Christian views in his own ways too. Uh, Rule 27, it, amazingly it didn't go away until it was the 70s. Madly, it remained on the books until 1971. Uh, and, you know, many great people have benefited from its removal. Uh, probably the best example, Jason Sherlock, J.O., who could play basketball, soccer for Shamrock Rovers and Gaelic football for the Dubs, sometimes in the very same weekend. So Rule 27 is where it belongs now, uh, relegated to the dustbin of history. All right. My thanks to Donald Fallon, author of the uh, Come Here To Me blog book, Volume 2. is out Now, that is our lot for today. Off the Ball is up next. My thanks to Stephen Jordan and Roisin Davis. Jojo Cardozo was on sound. Look, given the day that's in it, we touched on the church there. We got a, something with a religious theme, you know, and something a little bit Irish, I think. Hosier, take me to church. Have a good Sunday. My lover's got humour. She's a giggle at a funeral. Knows everybody's disapproval. I should have worshipped her sooner. If the heavens ever did speak, she's the last true mouthpiece. Every Sunday's getting more bleak. On the record. On the record. On News Talk.